When nuclear boosters set standards on what a so-called acceptable or harmless exposure to radioactivity is, what they don't tell you is that they're basing their evaluation on an adult male model. So when you hear a biologist, researcher, and genuine expert on nuclear issues tell you, When men and women get the same exposure over time, women will get 50% more cancers than the men. Little girls got 10 times more. Well, when you hear the truth of what nuclear radiation does to the genetic future of our species, you begin to understand the exact dangers of that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, an interview Nuclear Hot Seat conducted for International Women's Day programming on KPFA-FM in San Francisco. It's an in-depth talk with Mary Olson of Gender and Radiation Project. She provides information on how, from the start of the atomic age, the military and the nuclear industry gamed the numbers to hide the fact that women and children especially little girls, are more at risk from radiation exposure than the so-called standard acceptable models, which were all based upon military men. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than can penetrate our current focus on COVID-19, which will be part of today's report as well. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 17, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out this week with a roundup of stories on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the nuclear world. The problems are widespread, as you will hear, but one piece of it is so egregious that we must start out with... Nuclear hot seat. Olympics, the Greek Olympic Committee lit the torch for this year's games and the start of the torch relay on Thursday, March 12. And on Friday, March 13, the Greek Olympic Committee suspended the rest of the torch relay because of the unexpectedly large crowd that had gathered to watch, despite repeated requests to the public to stay away to prevent the spread of coronavirus. They have also suspended the rest of the torch run in Greece and will simply be handing over the Olympic flame to the Tokyo Organizing Committee on March 19 at the stadium in Athens where the first modern Olympic Games were held in 1896. And Japan? 
is planning to go right ahead with running that sucker through Fukushima Prefecture starting on March 26th. They have made no changes in their plans. We've been trying to get them to stop it because it's a radioactive area with known hotspots. They are planning to run through Futaba, which has areas that are four times higher than the radiation allowed for people to be exposed to in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. It's going to stay in Fukushima Prefecture for three days. And these numbnuts, which is the nicest thing I can call them, are still planning to go ahead with it. We've been trying to get them to cancel it because of the radiation exposure. But nah, that would just point out that, well, maybe there's some things about nuclear that aren't good. Now they've got the perfect reason to cancel, which is everything else in the world is being canceled because of coronavirus. Why not cancel the Olympic torch run? And still, they are adamant. They have not backed down. It is going to start, according to Japan, according to the moment of this recording, as of March 26. An empty gesture given the fact that just under 70% of people do not expect the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympic Games this summer to be held as scheduled amid the global outbreak of the novel coronavirus. That according to a Kyoto News survey on Monday, March 16. Greece cancels the torch run, but Japan can't? This is evil, numbnuts, because it puts people's lives immediately and long-term at risk, all at the same time. And that's why Japan Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, members of the International Olympic Committee, and any of the forces still pushing to move this torch run in Japan through Fukushima forward, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Numbnuts of the Week. By the way, Japan is artificially depressing the number of people who have been tested as positive for coronavirus because while it has a testing capacity of 6,000 daily, it's averaging only about 900 exams per day. Sick workers have been found at nuclear sites. A worker at Hinkley Point Nuclear Station in the UK has now developed COVID-19. He was a Chinese national who only got sick two days after he left the UK, so he was contagious before then. And it was only once he returned to China that they tested and found out he had it. And here in the U.S., two workers at Plant Vogel, which is a construction site for two new nuclear reactors in Georgia, are now suspected of having coronavirus and have been tested for it. They're awaiting results, as here in the U.S., it takes days to get results back, whereas in China, they get results back in four hours. Here in the U.S., the lawsuit against Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, for putting the sailors of the USS Ronald Reagan in harm's way after the Fukushima disaster by not reporting on the radiation and letting them know what they were up against, and they got dosed really heavily. That court case has been going forward, and there were oral arguments heard down in San Diego. However, I've been told by one of the attorneys, Paul Gardner, that in light of the court's curtailment of activities due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the decision of the court will necessarily be delayed. No word as to when we might be able to expect that. The International Uranium Film Festival in Spain and Portugal, which was scheduled for March 18 and 19, has been canceled as has the festival's presence in Rio de Janeiro, which was set for May 21st to May 31st. 
at Last Word, organizers Norbert Suchenek and Marcia Gomez de Oliveira were stranded in Spain. And closer to home, the Cascadia Uranium Film Arts Festival, which had been set for April 3 to 5 in Portland, Oregon, has also been canceled. And there is an excellent article on what the Fukushima meltdowns taught us about how to respond to coronavirus, written by two members of the SafeCast Radiation Monitoring Group, Sean Bonner and Asby Brown. We will link to that on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 456. In Japan, Reporters Without Borders have urged that country to stop pressuring the media on Fukushima-related topics. Since the accident, the media have consistently encountered pressure and censorship attempts when trying to investigate the topic. Cedric Alviani, Reporters Without Borders East Asia Bureau head, said, It is essential for the public to access independent information on the accurate radiation levels. The government is currently encouraging the remaining evacuees to settle back to the contaminated areas, but it must be fully transparent on the health hazard residents would be exposed to. They are asking for full access for all journalists, including foreign correspondents and freelancers, to the contaminated sites and to all raw data available. Many Japanese journalists denounce heavy self-censorship in the media, which they attribute to the government and nuclear lobby's efforts at concealing information seen as giving a negative image, put that in quotes, of Japan and hindering the preparation of the 2020 Olympic Games. One of the stories having a difficult time getting out is about the February 18th raid by the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department on the residential tent, meaning the home, of someone who has been protesting the Olympic Games. The person was charged with suspicion of having kept an incorrect address on the government-issued license card, meaning driving license. And on the basis of that minor point, confiscated a laptop, a mobile phone, notebooks, ID card, bank card, and many other items with this person's personal information. Posted by the group Hangorin no Kai, meaning No Olympics 2020, the group said, we firmly believe that this search was simply part of the state repression campaign targeting those who stand against the Olympics. But Japan's publications are happy to publish feel-good articles trying to convince everyone that things are a-okay with everything around the Olympics. This article was about surfs up in Fukushima nine years after the nuclear accident. This was numbnuts adjacent. It almost made it. It's about a 64-year-old who surfs every morning on the beach at Minamasoma, which is around 30 kilometers or 18 miles north of the remains of the triple meltdown Fukushima Daiichi nuclear facility. Koji Suzuki says that after the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear accident began, I, quote, I lost my house, my job, my shop, my mother died while evacuated, and my father followed within months. I lost everything except my surfing. Why this article? Because in 2020, surfing, if the Olympics are still held, is going to be making its Olympic debut. And the competition will be held on Tsurigasaki Beach in Chiba Prefecture, to the south of Fukushima Daiichi 
in waters where fish that are caught are still prevented from being imported to multiple countries. Despite his surfing, Koji Suzuki said, Fukushima will never recover. I can never go back to the same place where I used to live and run my shop. Fukushima will be stigmatized in history forever. The Japanese government and TEPCO have been ordered by a court to compensate Fukushima evacuees in Hokkaido. This is the seventh case where both the government and Tokyo Electric Power Company were ordered to pay damages. In four other cases, only TEPCO was ordered to pay damages. Now, the amount of the compensation is 52.9 million yen, which sounds like a lot, except in U.S. dollars, that's only $490,000. Split between the 89 plaintiffs, that comes to a whopping $5,500 and change for each one of them. In the U.S., the National Nuclear Security Administration, or NNSA, is a semi-autonomous arm of the Department of Energy. It handles the development of nuclear warheads with plans to modernize or redesign them. And the White House has asked for more than $46 billion for their nuclear programs in fiscal 2021 alone. That would include almost $29 billion for the Department of Defense to develop the delivery systems, such as the B-21 bomber, and the new replacement for intercontinental ballistic missiles. $15.5 billion would be going for NNSA's nuclear weapons account, and another $1.7 billion, a pittance really in all of this, for nuclear reactor work. Meanwhile, the NNSA has announced that it will not complete a new site-wide environmental impact statement for the Los Alamos National Laboratory. The last statewide environmental impact statement was in 2008. Since that time, A catastrophic wildfire burned to the western boundary of the lab. An exploding radioactive waste drum improperly prepared by Los Alamos shut down the waste isolation pilot plant for three years and cost taxpayers $3 billion to reopen. And too many incidents to mention here are part of Lanel's Los Alamos' long track record of chronic nuclear safety incidences, all of which remain unresolved. And the very busy NNSA has also determined that it is going to use facilities at Portsmouth and Paducah, Kentucky, to convert depleted uranium that apparently is very messy to a high-purity depleted uranium that can then be used to make parts for nuclear weapons and for down-blending highly enriched uranium into low-enriched uranium. We're going to have to get Vina Kali back on this show to explain what this story is all about. And in another piece of military nuclearization, on March 9, the government awarded a trio of firms $39.7 million to design micro-reactors. Doesn't that sound cute and inoffensive? Micro-reactors that can supply a few megawatts of power to remote military bases and be moved quickly by road, rail, sea, and air. Portable nuclear reactors in a battlefield. In New Mexico, activists have petitioned their congressional delegations to conduct a comprehensive environmental review of the two sites it selected to produce 80 nuclear weapons cores by 2030. The petition is aimed at making certain that the Department of Energy 
conducts a thorough review of the potential impacts of having Los Alamos National Laboratory and the Savannah River site in South Carolina make plutonium pits for a new generation of nuclear warheads. Also in New Mexico, at the opposite end of the fuel chain, the Navajo Nation residents want to know where is the uranium cleanup? A total of 523 Navajo Nation abandoned uranium mines that have received $1.7 billion for cleanup, but between 2007 and 2020, no cleanup has taken place. Out of the $1.7 billion, $116 million was spent on studies. And that was for 219 of the sites, not one of which is 100% ready to be cleaned up. At a recent community meeting on these issues, Teresita Kiana, one of the members of Navajo Nation, said that uranium mining robbed her family of their health, peace of mind, and way of life, and said, we shouldn't be considered expendable. It's been a devastation on our lives. Others at the meeting called this out as a perfect example of environmental racism. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission says that the Tennessee Valley Authority improperly fired two nuclear engineers after they raised concerns about the safety and management in TVA's nuclear power program. This was a violation of whistleblower protections for nuclear workers. These two unnamed workers were on programs at the Sequoia and Watts Bar nuclear power stations, and in a third instance, the TVA was forced to rehire a nuclear engineer after she raised safety concerns and questioned the performance of her boss in TVA's corporate nuclear program. In that instance, the Labor Department ordered TVA to give the engineer, Beth Wetzel, her job back and pay more than $200,000 in back pay, lost bonuses and benefits, as well as legal fees. No word yet as to what the ding is going to be in this latest case. More from the NRC. In a completely unsurprising move, it has approved a 20-year extension on the operating license of the Peach Bottom Nuclear Plant, only 50 miles southeast of Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. This despite the fact that the Fukushima-style nuclear reactor is already licensed for 60 years, which is 20 years past the use-by date intended by engineers when these things were originally built. And now the NRC is giving it another 20. At least the Dwayne Arnold nuclear reactor in Iowa will close as of October 30th, 2020. The state currently gets 37% of its electricity from wind power. And Southern California Edison, owners of the remains of the San Onofre nuclear reactors, have announced that they have installed new radiation monitors on site. But no word on how the data will be made available in real time to the public, what radiation indicators are measured, and lots of other pesky details, all of which impact whether this data can be trusted. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... With the coronavirus taking over the news cycle, it's becoming even harder than usual to learn the truth about nuclear issues and nightmares. In today's final thought, I will go into the parallels between COVID-19 and nuclear radiation. 
But no matter what happens with that virus, radioactivity created by the entire nuclear fuel chain, from uranium mining to bombs, nuclear reactors, and a millennia of plutonium-contaminated waste, all of that radioactivity is going to keep doing what it has always done, plow a subatomic path through the world and our bodies, damaging cells, causing disease, mutating DNA, and threatening life. So after you finish washing your hands, buying the groceries, and self-quarantining, pull yourself out of that rabbit hole of Facebook COVID links and help us out here at Nuclear Hot Seat with the other long-lived invisible threat to human life and safety, nuclear radiation. Knowledge is power, and the information that we share here on Nuclear Hot Seat every week helps you understand what the nuclear problems are that we face, and what we can do about them, both politically and personally. Now, Nuclear Hot Seat is dependent upon donations to meet our monthly expenses, so please help us out with a donation. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down just a little bit, and click on the big red Donate button to send a donation of any size. And to send us a monthly $5, Just click on the big green donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com. Please, do what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. For International Women's Day on March 8th, a special episode of Nuclear Hot Seat was produced that was broadcast in San Francisco on KPFA-FM. In it, We explored the disproportionate impact of nuclear radiation on the health of women, and especially little girls, with guest Mary Olson. She spent 28 years as a staff biologist and policy analyst at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, working for the greater health and protection of people in communities impacted by nuclear activities. Now, she is founder and acting director of Gender and Radiation Impact Project at genderandradiation.org. We spoke about her groundbreaking work on Monday, February 17, 2020. Mary Olson, thanks so much for joining us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for inviting me, Libby. Mary, I believe one of the reasons why people are not more alarmed about their exposure to nuclear radioactivity is that they simply don't understand it. Briefly, what is it, where does it come from, and what does it do to our bodies and our health? I'm talking about ionizing radiation here with you today. So we're not today talking about cell phones or smart meters or that kind of thing, which is not the same as gamma rays, alpha particles, beta particles, neutrons. It all sounds very complicated, but it's not. These are charged particles and energetic waves that can disrupt both the structures of cells and much more easily the chemistry of cells, both of which can lead to disease. What are the diseases we're talking about? The one that our government looks at exclusively is cancer. And cancer is very much of a given from radiation exposure. We know there is no dose of radiation small enough to be safe from cancer. Every single exposure has some risk. The more exposure, the more risk. But there's non-cancer effects, like infertility, 
loss of pregnancy, miscarriage, and spontaneous abortion. There's wearing down our immune systems. There's something called Chernobyl AIDS, which was from too many small exposures, wearing down immune systems. Heart impacts. There's a long list of non-cancer impacts that our government doesn't even look at. So primarily we talk about cancer because it's the one that is the most studied. Much of our understanding of whether exposure to nuclear radiation, ionizing radiation is dangerous or not, comes in relationship to something called reference man. What is this? How did he come about? And what is his importance in our discussion of health impacts from nuclear radioactivity? There's two pieces here, reference and man. Let's start with the man part. Back at the beginning of the atomic era in the discovery of radioactivity and then the immediate move to militarize it in the Manhattan Project, the people who were exposed to this new type of radioactivity coming from fission, splitting atoms, were primarily males, primarily military males, primarily young guys who could be characterized as GIs, general issues, right? So they made an envelope, a height, a weight, a lifestyle that corresponded to those guys. And that was kind of appropriate at the time. So the second part is the reference. So they have this one formula for who got any given radiation exposure. The problem is that our federal government and our states following behind it, and most of the world based on our system, never stopped to think about generalizing those radiation standards to the general public where not everybody is five foot eight inches tall and weighs 145 pounds and has a young male lifestyle. The standards based on reference man are used for people of all ages, from infants to elders, male and female. And what we're going to be talking about, the fact is that not only is it inappropriate to use this standard based on a young man for a baby, it's also inappropriate to use it for a female of any age. You said that it was a question that came from someone who heard you speak that started you off on the investigation of how radiation might have a different impact on women and children. Who was that woman? Where did this story come from? Well, Libby, I was speaking in South Carolina about radioactive waste in a public setting. And afterwards, I always like to have time for questions and answers and discussion. And a woman asked me, was radiation more harmful to her body compared to a man's body? I had never heard this question. I knew most of the independent researchers on radiation of the 20th century because of my job at Nuclear Information and Resource Service. I just retired recently. But during those years, there was never any discussion of biological sex as a factor in radiation harm. So this woman's question really took me by surprise. I gave her a pregnancy answer, which was perfectly good, but she came back with, no, I'm not talking about pregnancy. I'm talking about my own body. And I couldn't answer it. And then about a year and a half later, reactors started exploding in Japan at Fukushima Daiichi. And I was mandated to reach out to Japan and be in touch with people who are being affected by that radiation. And all of a sudden, her question came back to me. And I realized that I had a moral obligation since I didn't even know that the question existed, to try and find her an answer. And that event really turned the rest of the work I've done ever since. How did you start doing your research on this? Where did you look? What were the sources? And what did you discover? 
I did the thing we all do first. I Googled and I didn't find anything. And I Googled pretty extensively and I didn't find anything. So I had a mentor who I had been working with, Dr. Rosalie Bertel, for some years. Unfortunately, Rosalie was at the end of her life, had terminal cancer. And so she was the one who told me that 60 years of data from tracking the A-bomb survivors was now publicly available in a report that the National Academy of Sciences had put out in 2006. This is now 2011, so it's four years later. And indeed, the authors of that report acknowledge that radiation is more harmful to females, but that's all they say. They don't disclose where the numbers are or what the relative harm in the numbers is or anything. So I had to sit down with the rough numbers of so many cancers per 100,000. Happily, they were disaggregated by male and female, so I could look at the numbers for females versus males. And horrifically, Hiroshima and Nagasaki is where those A-bombs fell on whole cities full of people. So there were people of all ages who were all irradiated at the same time. They were all of them irradiated on the same day, which was August 6th, 1945. And three days later in Nagasaki, again, a whole city full of people, all ages, both genders, were irradiated at the same time. Those who survived, most did not survive. But this report had tracking data on the cancer incidents and cancer deaths amongst the people who were there in those two cities on those days and the age they were at the time that they were exposed. So it's one of the only places where we can look at a group of people large enough to do the kind of um, epidemiology where you can start generalizing from those numbers to people in general. And findings were very startling. What did you discover and what was your response as you were coming up with this information? The first discovery I made had to do with exposure of adult men and women. And this was because the woman who asked me the question was an adult woman. So I was looking for an answer for her. And I discovered that when men and women get the same exposure over time, women will get 50% more cancers than the men. For every two men who died of cancer in the study group of A-bomb survivors, for every two men who died, three women died of cancer. To me, that was highly significant. And I wrote an initial paper called Atomic Radiation is More Harmful to Women. And it focused specifically on the adult. Soon thereafter, I went back and looked at all males and all females in the age groups that are to five years and then six to 10 years and on up to 80 years old. And the results are even more striking in children. As a biological researcher, when you get a doubling of almost anything, you stop, look, and listen. And amongst the youngest children, birth to five years old, for every boy who somewhere in his lifetime, not childhood cancers, but somewhere in his lifetime got cancer, two girls got cancer. That's a doubling, and it was very startling. Then we go back to reference man, and we use the assumptions of the regulator to predict those cancers from the exposure in question. And little boys got five times more cancer than expected by reference man as the model, but little girls got 10 times more. And 10 times is stop the music, set off the siren, drop everything else you're doing and try and get everybody to pay attention to this because 10 times more cancer occurring in our population than is currently accounted for by these experts in little girls being exposed who become women over their lifetimes 
10 times more cancer than expected is a lot. This must have been very startling for you because, in essence, you were in new territory. You were discovering something out of the data that nobody had come up with before. How did this impact you? How did it strike you? You know, Libby, I had missed a memo about a previous publication from Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. But working full-time in this field, I'm Googling, I'm talking to people. I even published my first paper, and I still didn't know about that other paper. So the answer is, it's like being surrounded by a cone of silence, as they say in some media, and invisible, completely invisible. You know, they only use this little point called reference man on this whole big wad of information we now have. They're ignoring the rest. So it makes me feel a little bit muted, a little bit wrapped in cotton, if you will, but we're talking about it. How does the use of reference man as the exclusive standard work against our understanding of the impact of radiation exposure? Well, decision makers only see information that is completely based on reference man if it comes from the U.S. federal agencies that do licensing. Now, the Environmental Protection Agency has made a small little effort, but it's so inconsequential, I'm not going to waste our time on it. Our federal agencies look at everything in terms of a population, and they claim that reference man is representative of the human population. They don't understand that little boys and little girls are part of our life cycle. And you can't do something to a little girl that doesn't show up in the population if she survives long enough to become an adult, right? So they're completely ignoring the disproportionate impact of radiation on female bodies. And the real key is that there is greater impact no matter what the age of the female is in relation to a same-aged male. In every age group, the female is harmed more than the male. Why would that be? That is why Gender and Radiation Impact Project is what I'm doing these days to foster a new generation of independent researchers asking those questions and building their careers around answering the question, why? Why would that be? We have no idea. When we're talking about radiation exposure, I'm certain that there are people listening to this who are thinking, eh, it doesn't impact me. I'm not near Fukushima. I'm not near Chernobyl. There's nothing around me. Give us a sense of just some of the ways that people might be exposed to the ionizing radiation from nuclear. First off, we are including every medical and dental exposure in this discussion. We're also including every high-altitude airplane flight because atmosphere shields us. So the higher you go up in the air, the less shield you have from the natural radiation from space. And our media loves talking about space as the next frontier. And certainly a very few number of people are going to go there, but they're going to be challenged by the amount of radiation out there. We have radon in our homes. It's a radioactive gas. And as we build more efficient structures, homes that are tighter, the gas can build up. So unless we have a good radon test and we put in ventilation for that gas, we can get very high exposures. But the primary source of exposure is medical. And I just want to take a moment, Libby, and say that if you need imaging or treatment to save your life, you're less worried about the long-term consequences like reproduction and cancer. So I always share that I indeed had CAT scans to have my ankle replaced. 
but I had them over the age of 50 and well past childbearing. I think we need to be smart in our decisions about this because every single one of those exposures we now know can add up in a cumulative fashion and result in the same level of risk as a higher exposure. They aren't like pouring little teeny drinks, oh, it didn't affect us. Oh yeah, it does. What about radioactivity from, say, leftover fallout from the atmospheric bomb tests or from nuclear reactors? Is that also an issue? Absolutely. A primary example of this is sequestration of cesium that is very radioactive and very harmful to our bodies, taken up by trees. And in the northeastern United States, they discovered wood ash was pretty radioactive, and they figured out that the trees had stored the cesium, and people who heated with the wood then brought it back in and recycled it out into the atmosphere. The same thing happens with brush fires around Chernobyl, and I'm sure in the future in Japan, they've had more flooding problems than fire problems, but every time there is a fire of this vegetation that has absorbed the radioactivity, it gets remobilized into the smoke. And certainly the 2,000 detonations of nuclear weapons all but two of them as tests on our planet basically constitute a nuclear war without the war. And the fallout from those tests is cloaking the entire northern hemisphere and parts of the southern hemisphere with persistent radioactivity that were basically only one to two half-lives. And now we're getting into the complicated stuff, but it basically means, hell yeah, there's a lot more radioactivity still out there that's in our food and in our water and these result in a different type of exposure that we know even less about. This is when you get radioactivity inside your body from drinking radioactive water or eating radioactive food. And, you know, seafood is wonderful food, but it concentrates up the food chain as also milk from cows. The cow eats the radioactive grass and the cow's body concentrates that um, cesium and strontium into its milk. These are fallout components from the nuclear weapons tests and from reactor accident. And that radioactive milk then is, we ingest it, or it gets even more concentrated if you make cheese and other dairy products out of it. And at this point, you know, a lot of that has moved through the system, but Chernobyl covered 40% of Europe in measurable levels of cesium. And certainly Fukushima Prefecture and areas outside of it in Japan have been heavily contaminated with our global trade. You just don't know what you're getting. And, of course, speaking about the smoke that gets released, when we had the Woolsey fire here in Southern California two years ago, it was 2018, it started at the Santa Susana Field Lab, which is a Superfund site that had a nuclear meltdown and many radiation pits for disposal of radioactive materials on the site. And those were aerosolized as well. There are still tests coming back, but it's showing that it's not distant places that will put us at risk from radioactivity and the exposure to it, but it can be in our own backyards, whether we are aware of it or not. Indeed, nuclear power reactors are in over 30 states in the United States, and there's over 90 of them still operating, even though they're shutting down more rapidly than they will ever be built again. But they emit radioactivity on an ongoing basis that is, they say, okay for reference man. But there's no evaluation of the emissions from either nuclear power reactors or nuclear weapons production factories 
or any of the research labs like the one that you just cited that had that terrible fire and absolutely resulted in radioactive release. There was no way it did not. But these other sites have radioactive releases in an ongoing basis that are not evaluated for babies. They're only evaluated for reference man. Now, you were asked to present this information to the United Nations in 2015. Who was that made to, and what was the impact of the presentation? We held a side session during the review of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, and the we included the nations of Ireland, Austria, Sweden, and several smaller island nations. And there were over 300 people who attended, And the rest of our presentations, I was one of a panel of four speakers, our presentations were pointing out that humanitarian law has as much relevance to the impact of making, possessing, and potentially using nuclear weapons. Humanitarian law is relevant as much or more than military law. It was the humanitarian law that was used to pass the prohibition on landmines that has made such a huge difference in the world. And it was because of the impact on non-combatants, the impact on women and children, and the impact through time that the General Assembly passed that landmine treaty instead of the Security Council. And so there's a huge difference between the laws for health and a sustainable future versus the laws of war. And so we were making the case on nuclear weapons that the laws of sustainability and health should apply to nuclear weapons. And the outcome of that in 2015, two years later, was the promulgation of the new treaty, the Convention on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And it was really, really exciting to be part of that. That treaty passed the United Nations. Yes, there was an overwhelming vote in favor of the treaty language. Now, the process of a treaty is standard, which is once it's been passed in terms of what it says, then each nation has the option to sign it or not. And once it signs it, it has to ratify it, which in the United States means that the U.S. Senate has to also agree, not just the ambassador to the U.N., which, who would act on behalf of the president and the executive branch. So right now, the status is 81 nations have signed this new treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons, and 35 have ratified. When 15 more, when it hits 50 nations have ratified, it will go into force. And then nuclear weapons will be in the same category as chemical and biological weapons are today. They will be effectively illegal to own, to build, and to sell, and to use. Nobody goes marching into somebody else's nation to demilitarize part of their arsenal. So it's a voluntary process, but it will totally change the tilt of the table. And again, I'm just super thrilled to have contributed to that. There's even a little paragraph in the preamble that mentions this work. It's a profound impact that you've had with this research and with what you've been able to share. You also have an observation about a key change you would like to see come about in terms of how we refer to exposure to nuclear radiation. My recommended first step for addressing the disproportionate impact of radiation on girls and women 
is for our regulators to create and adopt a reference little girl. And just like reference man is currently used to appraise every single radiation dose and the, the hazards that are associated with it, everybody would be assumed to be a reference little girl. Now, this is just a first step, but it would really ensure protection for females of every age and female bodies of all types and begin to address our life cycle, protecting our life cycle instead of a quote-unquote population. We're speaking for a special International Women's Day slate of programs for KPFA in San Francisco. And that area has its own unique problems with radioactivity, just two of which are the former Naval Yard at Hunter's Point, which is a Superfund site and a known site of radioactive materials, and also the existence of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory up the coast, which is part of the nation's nuclear weapons complex. If people wish to become involved in nuclear issues in this area, where can they go and who can they connect with to learn more and find some actions they can get involved in? Tri-Valley Cares is in the Bay Area and has focused on Lawrence Livermore and its role in the entire nuclear weapons complex. They work at the local level, but definitely plug in at the national scope. And Western States Legal Foundation and Physicians for Social Responsibility, both in the San Francisco Bay Area, are wonderful conduits to the global work and the international campaigns. And I really encourage people to consider being involved with either or both. And one other is called Mothers for Peace down where the only operating nuclear reactor in California today is located in San Luis Obispo. And the Mothers for Peace there have been watchdogs on that operation for many years. We will provide links for all of these for KPFA, and we will also have them on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. Any final thoughts, Mary? Thank you. Yeah, Reference Little Girl is really just a first step because our entire life cycle includes the reproductive phases. And so I think we need to take action before we have all the answers But when we have all the answers, I can't help but think it will be even more protective than the idea of reference little girls. So no one should see her as radical, simply as protective. Mary Olson, you've done astonishing work that is of global importance on this nuclear issue. And on behalf of women, children, those who love them, and Nuclear Hot Seat, I want to thank you for being my guest today on this special program. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. Mary Olson is the acting director of the Gender and Radiation Impact Project. You can contact her through genderandradiation.org, which is where you will find extensive material and footnotes on all the issues we discussed. Mary also wanted me to add that she acknowledges that her government, our government, chose to use the first nuclear weapons in an attack on civilians, and that this was wrong. She knows her use of the data from this nuclear destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, in 1945, is part of that wrong. The findings she made in that data could help better protect half of the human race, and so she apologizes for this decision, and is only one woman, 
for the decision in 1945. Make that two women, because I also apologize for that decision. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Good news for all of you who want to know what's happening with radiation in Japan, the real story. The English version of the award-winning book, Citizens Radiation Data Map of Japan, is now available digitally. The 18-page translation is a digest of a map for which over 4,000 Japanese citizens collected soil samples at more than 3,400 points in Japan over the course of three years. If you are a journalist, a researcher, an activist, or just a concerned individual who wants to be able to prove the spread of Fukushima's radioactivity throughout the country, that's especially important at this time of the Abe administration pushing for the Summer Olympics and next week's torch relay through Fukushima Prefecture, this is the most important resource you can get. We will have a link up to the Mina no Data Site stores on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 456. I'd read it to you, but it's way too long and complex. Just go to the website, and you'll be able to find the link there. Now, a reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is changing its Facebook presence. In two weeks, at the end of March, we will be closing out the Nuclear Hot Seat weekly podcast page and focusing attention solely on the Nuclear Hot Seat page. Just part of the consolidation that's happening with the website upgrade, which is estimated will be completely in place by the end of March. At this point, the new website is in beta form and we've been testing it out, still working out the bugs. Know that already, if you want to go there and scroll back through past episodes, you can put in nuclearhotseat.com slash podcasts and a new page that will easily allow you to just go back in time episode by episode will come up. We're also working to simplify the search by subject matter. Know that all the changes are being made to ensure that our more than 450 episodes of content are more readily available to you to find whatever it is that you're looking for. Here's today's final thought. The parallels between COVID-19 and nuclear radiation are enormous. In my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat, I write about the moment at Three Mile Island, I was only one mile away, when I heard a loudspeaker going down the middle of the road announcing, keep your doors and windows closed and do not go outside unless you absolutely have to. As regards COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, we are in that moment now. Only instead of listening for a bullhorn from an emergency vehicle slowly driving down the street, we're all online catching the latest updates from what we hope is the safety of our homes. Once again, we the people are in the crosshairs of something invisible to the human senses. You can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, feel it. And yet, this virus is an existential threat to our health and our future. Something that cannot be talked, reasoned, gaslighted, or manipulated out of doing what it's going to do attack cells, and destroy life. The difference 
is that radiation takes years, decades, even generations until its true impact can be known. This virus's timeline is much shorter, weeks, even days. Nuclear provides slow-motion destruction, so slow that it's easy to ignore, which is why it's so hard to get people to pay attention to our concerns. But COVID-19? That is right here, right now, real time, right before our very eyes, and seemingly moving faster every day. In essence, that loudspeaker has already gone down the middle of our national and planetary street, telling us all to stay indoors, not open our doors and windows, and not go outside unless we absolutely have to. That is the sound of life changing, possibly, if not probably, forever. But I've already been there and done that. And perhaps my experience at Three Mile Island has prepared me for this, because I find myself thinking, what, not again? And then knowing exactly what to do, putting myself in self-quarantine for as long as it takes. I am not in denial. And if you're listening to this show, I'm willing to bet that neither are you. If anything, those of us who have been dealing with the reality of radiation dangers post-Fukushima, post-Three Mile Island, post-Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Trinity, Marshall Islands, and all the rest, we're in a better position than most to know how to deal with this latest existential crisis without freaking out. Many of us, because of our nuclear preparedness, already have at least three months' worth of supplies on hand, including masks and sanitizer. We know this fear, though from a different set of sources. It sucks, but at least we're not in denial and thinking, oh, I'll be fine, they're blowing it up out of proportion. We have no assurance that that is so. So let's err on the side of caution. And given the parallels between radiation and COVID-19, I'm thinking about doing some Facebook Lives or Zoom calls or some such to help deliver the message that we need to take precautions and we need to also keep grounded, keep centered, and not freak out. Now, admittedly, no one is immune. No one is the exception. Radiation, COVID-19, neither one cares who you are, how much money you have, where you live, the color of your skin, your religion, or your race. So I'm home alone, except for Munchkin, going out only for food and to walk the dog in the belief that by taking proper actions now, immediately, with no exceptions, it will be possible for me to duck this invisible threat to my health and life, and on the far side of it all, look back with no regrets. Would that it would be that easy to be able to duck away from the impact of nuclear radiation. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 17, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclearinternational.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, japantimes.co.jp, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, yahoo.com, 
AikenStandard.com, the International Uranium Film Festival, Lucien.uchicago.edu, Hangorin.tumblr.com, JapanToday.com, Reporters Without Borders, DefenseNews.com, SomersetLive.co.uk, Tri-ValleyCares.org, National Nuclear Workers for Justice and Press, the Portsmouth Piketon Residence for Environmental Safety and Security. That comes with thanks to Vina Colley, as always. Economist.com, DefenseNews.com, TimesFreePress.com, SantaFeNewMexican.com, TausNews.com, NavajoTimes.com, Joseph Mangano and Radiation and Public Health at Radiation.org, Paul Gunter and Beyond Nuclear International, YorkDispatch.com, the Samuel Lawrence Foundation, vcreporter.com, tri-cityherald.com, counterpunch.org, and listeners around the world who keep me informed as to what the nuclear situation looks like from their perspective. If you would like to be among the first to gain access to Nuclear Hot Seat every week when it posts, you can go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down for what is now going to be a yellow bar going across as opposed to a yellow box, fill it in with your name and your email address, and once a week you will get an email with a link to that week's show, as well as a short description of what is contained within. If you prefer, go to your favorite podcast site because we are all over the place, and you can subscribe with any of your favorite podcast platforms. You can also pick up the show on Facebook, where when you go to the Nuclear Hot Seat page, like, join, follow, comment, give it a thumbs up, whatever you can do. Let's keep building the awareness of Nuclear Hot Seat so that people will know where they can get their nuclear news every week. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to the website and click on the big red donate button to send a donation of any size to Nuclear Hot Seat. We will, as always, be grateful for your support. We also want to know if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview. So if you've got one of those, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that you cannot protect yourself against nuclear dangers if you don't know what they are. Knowledge is power. Keep listening. That's it. You have had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking. But our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.